Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 52, Bayezid the Lightning Bolt. No new Patreon supporters since the last episode, so the usual big thanks to everyone who backs the podcast. And a particular shout out to Miroslav Paskov. It was great meeting you in London. As always, you know, if I'm traveling somewhere, it's always nice to meet up with any podcast fans. I'll actually be in Israel towards late November, early December. So any Israeli listeners, get in touch. I'd love to meet you. So last time we left off with the massively significant Battle of Kosovo in 1389. Random fact, I was actually born on the 600th anniversary of this battle, something I didn't know until researching it now. But anyways, random facts aside, the Battle of Kosovo was a kind of tactical draw with neither the Serbs and their Bosnian allies nor the Ottomans under Murad achieving a decisive victory. However, with both sides taking huge losses, the Ottomans were much better able to recover and bring in fresh troops. The Serbs, on the other hand, were left nearly defenseless after losing so many thousands of men on the so-called Field of Blackbirds. The battle left the most powerful Serbian leader, Lazar, and Sultan Murad both dead. Much like with their soldiers, Murad's son stepped in to replace him and killed his brother to ensure there would be no power struggle. Lazar's son, on the other hand, didn't have the same reputation as his father and wasn't in a position to simply step into his shoes. Thus, there was a fairly seamless transition of power for the Ottomans, but not for the Serbs. The Serbs simply could not replace their leader the way the Ottomans could. Bulgaria, as a result, was now weaker than ever. As 1389 turns into 1390, the Balkan states have clearly given resistance to the Ottomans a serious try, but it simply has not been enough. At the beginning of this episode, I wanted to briefly talk about a trend which has followed Ottoman conquest in the Balkans. Because, as I briefly mentioned before, the Ottomans were not terribly concentrated as a single force. Sure, they all swore fealty to the Sultan, but Sticking to their Central Asian roots, the Ottomans were fairly decentralized. Individual commanders had the authority to go out on their own raids, which is why at times we've seen Ottoman forces of, say, 20,000 or fewer invading some territory, while the main Ottoman force conducted operations elsewhere. This obviously has really aided in their ability to expand quickly. But smaller Ottoman parties were even more common, And the results of these small raids were quite similar to those of similar raids in centuries past by the Tatars, the Pechenegs, the Rus, and others. John Fine describes this phenomenon well when he says, quote, Ottoman raids brought about great instability in the region of the Balkans they penetrated. As crops were destroyed and peasants carried off as captives, agricultural production was disrupted. Moreover, The raids caused a large number of refugees from around the countryside or small towns to flee to better fortified towns, presenting the towns with the problem of feeding and sheltering them at a time when they were having difficulty in providing food for their own citizens. 
And, as so often happened, in previous eras, with when rural life, many destitute or uprooted peasants took up brigandage, disrupting commerce and in general making the roads unsafe for would-be travelers. End quote. Then, to make problems worse, these brigands created the need for more men to guard the caravans and roads. Often, brigands themselves would be hired because, well, they were available and they knew how to do that job. But if they were underpaid, they would just steal themselves. A classic problem we see around the world today with uh, police forces. You need the police because of the instability, but because of the instability, there's not enough money to pay the police to encourage the police not to take bribes and things. It's sort of a self-reinforcing cycle. The sum of all of this was that commerce was grinding to a halt, setting off a chain of events leading to fewer taxes being taken, leading to less money to pay for the army and fewer peasants to serve in the army, and weakened morale to defend a country that was increasingly destitute and in chaos. Thus, the reasons for the fast Ottoman expansion were many, but where compounding effects of Ottoman raids and the brigandage they helped encourage were no doubt a devastating ingredient in this recipe. Okay, so now back to the regular narrative. So just following the Battle of Kosovo, as the Ottomans began to take advantage of the regional situation in, in that battle's aftermath, things got even worse for the Serbs. Because in November of 1389, King Sigismund of Hungary invaded Serbia to expand his territory and take northern Serbian lands that in the, previous, uh, in the past had actually belonged to the Hungarians. And it was an easy move. I mean, the Serbs were weak. They could do almost nothing to oppose the Hungarians. And generally, this was important for Sigismund. It helped shore up his position because he had just come to the Hungarian throne because Sigismund had actually been born in Nuremberg, son of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV, in addition to being related to the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania. In short, he had one of the best royal pedigrees in Europe. He had become King of Hungary four years previously by marrying the Queen of Hungary. Thus, he was seen as a bit of a foreigner and he needed to earn his popularity. Now, We'll talk more about him later, but for now, we need to know that he's in the north taking advantage of the aftermath of the Battle of Kosovo, and that he just needs to gain popularity. He needs to, to sort of bolster his position with his people, being a foreigner on the throne for just four years. The result of all of this was Serbia crushed between the Hungarians and the Ottomans. Vuk Branković, that Serbian leader who had fled the Battle of Kosovo, owned land in the south and was vulnerable to the Ottomans. Therefore, he decided to seek friendly terms with the Hungarians, because really what else was he going to do? His main Serbian rivals to the south were therefore pushed even more strongly to become Ottoman vassals in order to resist Branković. Thus, this sort of interplay between some people allying with the Ottomans to protect their lands, other people allying with the Hungarians to protect their lands, created even more disunity within Serbia. Then, the next year, in 1390, things were changing elsewhere. The grandson of the Byzantine Emperor John V decided it was time to return to what was becoming a grand Byzantine tradition, rebellion and civil war. Now, first, 
who was this grandson? A man named John VII. Again, his grandfather, the sitting emperor, is John V. So for one, the grandson was none other than Ivan Alexander and Theodora of Wallachia's uh, grandson. See, their daughter Kiratsa had been married off to the Byzantine Andronicus IV, and their only son was John VII. So this boy was the grandson of the Byzantine Emperor, as well as the grandson of the former Bulgarian Tsar. Now, you remember that the son of Ivan Alexander, or sorry, his son-in-law, rather, Andronicus IV, that he had rebelled against John V, the guy who's still on the throne. And it was one of these rebellions. There were, there were several iterations. Uh, and the first time it was because the Byzantines had become a vassal of the Ottomans. And then he rebelled again later. Uh, he had been blinded at one point, had one eye taken out. Uh, and eventually, in his second rebellion, he was killed. So this John VII, who's rebelling right now, his father had led two rebellions, which had been part of the kind of series of events that was really weakening the Byzantine Empire just as the Ottomans were expanding. Not all his fault, but like he had played a critical role, you can say. But what I didn't mention back when I was talking about these rebellions of Andronicus IV was that his son, this John VII, had also participated and, to, as punishment, had also been deprived of one of his two eyes. But he had survived the second rebellion, which had taken his father's life, and he still lived in Constantinople, a one-eyed grandson of the sitting emperor. But a rebel nonetheless. So this half-Bulgarian, son of a man who had twice, twice rebelled and who was not next in line, his uncle Manuel II was made the heir to the throne because of, well, obvious reasons. Well, in the good old tra family tradition, on April 14, 1390, the young John VII rebelled and overthrew his grandfather. However, within five months, his uncle, the heir to the throne, Manuel II, and his grandfather, the emperor, with Venetian help, managed to take the throne back. The rebellion was crushed. John VII fled to the Ottomans. Really, where else was he going to go, I guess? Upon regaining the throne in late 1390, the elder emperor, John V, became more concerned with protecting Constantinople. Thus, he cannibalized marble from old churches in the city to reinforce its fortifications. It was no secret that this was done to protect from Ottoman's attacks, and Sultan Bayezid certainly knew this. However, just prior to all of this, John V's son and heir, Manuel II, had been forced to go to Bayezid as an honorary hostage in Bursa. So, we know the Byzantine Empire is a vassal of the Ottomans, and so the Byzantine heir to the throne is an Ottoman captive to ensure the Byzantines stay loyal. During the brief time Manuel spent uh, as a sort of Ottoman hostage, he'd actually been forced to assist in the Ottoman conquest of Philadelphia, the last independent Greek city in Asia Minor. Now, you may remember there was an agreement way back in 1378 to give it to the Ottomans, but it seems like this was never actually carried through. And so it was actually in this year, 1390, with Manuel's reluctant help that the Ottomans succeeded in conquering it. But what was most important here was that the heir to the throne was an Ottoman hostage, like I said. Bayezid was in a position, therefore, to demand that those additional fortifications for Constantinople be torn down. Otherwise, he threatened to blind the heir, Manuel. 
Not wanting such a thing to happen to his only remaining son and heir, Emperor John V agreed. Within perhaps a month, the old emperor was dead anyways. Hearing the news, Manuel managed to escape Ottoman captivity and rushed to take his position on the throne in Constantinople before his rebellious nephew John VII could do the same. But while all this was going on, Bayezid was also busy elsewhere. In the summer of 1390, while John VII had been enjoying the throne for a few months, the Ottomans had been doing something they actually hadn't done in decades, fighting in Anatolia. This was in part because the death of Murad at the Battle of Kosovo had encouraged Turkish rulers in Anatolia to assert themselves against growing Ottoman power. So, Bayezid led a general campaign of expansion and consolidation in Anatolia against other Turkish Muslim states by securing legal rulings by Muslim scholars to justify these wars against their co-religionists. Ironically, these wars were assisted by Serbian and Byzantine forces provided as part of these vassalage agreements with those two states. Now, if you want to get an idea where Anatolia was at this point, you can find a map on the website. It's an old map, it's from a few decades before this, but it gives you an idea of how divided Anatolia was. There's all these little kind of Turkish states scattered throughout the whole region with the Ottomans really just holding a nice little chunk of territory around Bursa and Nicosia. Um, but of course the Ottomans have been expanding tremendously in the Balkans, but they've been neglecting Anatolia. So that's changing. As Bayezid expanded in Anatolia, he became concerned that the remaining Turkish states there would unite against him behind his greatest rival in the region, Kadi Burhan al-Din. Well, after about a year of fighting, Bayezid's expansion was halted when Burhan al-Din won the Battle of Kirk Dilim. While it wasn't a catastrophic loss for the Ottomans, it was enough for Bayezid to set Anatolia aside for now and return to the Balkans to continue his expansion there. His energy was as frenetic as his father's as he rushed all over his domain, making new conquests every year. Remember that this was pretty unusual for a state at this time to conduct military campaigns every single year as the Ottomans did. Back when Basil the Bulgar Slayer conquered the First Bulgarian Empire, his relentless annual campaigning was part of his success. The Bulgarians never had time to sort of breathe because he just conducted annual campaign after annual campaign after annual campaign. Most states couldn't quite keep this up, but the Ottomans could and this was a part of their success. Both the Sultan and his vassals really never missed a campaign season, and Bayezid himself was called Yildirim, or the lightning bolt, for his ferocity and his energy. And that energy brought him from Anatolia to the Balkans, where in 1391 he and his vassals led raids against northern Greece, Zeta, roughly where modern Montenegro is if you've forgotten, and parts of Albania. Just days after the new year of 1392 dawned, the Ottomans managed to conquer Skopje, which would then serve as a major point of operations in the region. But more than just that, the loss of Skopje was also a final blow for Vuk Brankovic, again that Serbian commander who had abandoned the Battle of Kosovo and was trying to ally with the Hungarians concerned about his lands in southern Serbia in places like Skopje. In the months after losing Skopje, he realized that his position in the region was hopeless and that attempts to work with the Hungarians weren't enough to save his land holdings. 
Thus, he finally acquiesced and became an Ottoman vassal himself in 1392. His surrender meant that the only remaining Serbian lands not under Ottoman or Hungarian control was the region of Hum, which is sort of modern Herzegovina, which is ruled by Bosnian king Tvertu. Although he had died the previous year without a clear heir, there was a bunch of uh, a bit of a disagreement about who would succeed him, and now a man named Dabisha. But anyways, this was the only region that not was not ruled by the uh, by the Hungarians or the Ottomans. So really, there were no more independent Serbian rulers. And a quick point about Dabisha, the new king of Bosnia. He was a fairly weak ruler. He wasn't respected as much. And he was opposed by Sigismund of Hungary, which altogether led to effect, led to the kind of outcome that Bosnia as a kingdom is also weakening at this time. Now, of course, Bayezid didn't slow down while all this was happening. In 1392, he raided even more, but did see some setbacks. Groups of Albanian tribes, for example, were uniting to resist. And the Ottomans were realizing that conquering mountain dwellers was a far more difficult proposition than their valley-dwelling cousins. So the Ottomans saw some minor setbacks in northern Albania. But still, they had been busy in Anatolia, Greece, and Serbia. Bulgaria under Ivan Shishman during this time had been weighing its options. Seeing, as the Serbs had, that the only power really capable of challenging the Ottomans during this time were the Hungarians. Shishman had spent 1391 to 1392 actually in secret talks with King Sigismund over an anti-Ottoman alliance. But by late 1392, Bayezid learned that his vassal was planning to turn on him and organized a massive invasion of Bulgaria in retaliation. In April of 1393, an Ottoman army reached Tronovo and put it to siege. The Tsar Ivan Shishman was still in Nikopol on the Danube, where he had fled following the previous Ottoman invasion. Though he presumably could communicate with Sigismund more easily from there, still this meant that the defense of Tronovo was left to the exceptionally well-respected patriarch of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, Evtimi. The city held out for three months, but its only real hope was an intervention by Sigismund and the Hungarians. And, frankly, there was no indication that they were going to come. And so, there was no real reason to continue resisting. The great fortress city of Turnival finally surrendered on July 17, 1393. Following yet another rebellion by the Bulgarians against Ottoman rule, it was decided to formally annex what had been conquered and put it under direct Ottoman control. No more vassalage. That was over. Still, a few towns and cities along the Danube remained under the control of Tsar Ivan Shishman, and the Ottoman vassal state of Vidin was still under the rule of Stratzimir. The despot of Dobrodica along the Black Sea had recently been conquered by Wallachia, and so it was gone, and the southern Black Sea coast was controlled by the Byzantines, and thus already an Ottoman vassal. So again, all that remained, not independent, but just a vassal to the Ottomans, not directly controlled, were these few Danubian cities and Vidin. But Turnival, the heart of the Second Bulgarian Empire, was gone. Many of its churches were converted into mosques, and new rulers were installed. Many local residents converted to Islam, though it's highly unlikely that they were forced to do this, 
I'm going to talk in the future at length about the issue of forced conversion, but for now know that more likely most of these people converted for reasons of power, position, economics, or a genuine change of belief. But the cultural power of Turnival was never going to be the same. Sure, cities like Breslav and Ohrid had continued to be culturally important for centuries, but during the Second Bulgarian Empire, it was Turnival at the core of culture in Bulgaria. Patriarch Evtimi, who retired to a monastery after narrowly escaping execution for leading the defense of the city, wrote the following poem about it. The glorious city of Turnival is rejoicing today and invokes the reigning over the cities, saying, Rejoice with me, mother of the cities, because with those that you raised, I am lauding now. For I acquired them for aids and advocates. I am truly blissful among the cities, because I gathered good treasures, the wonderful relics of the saints, whose advocacy, when I have, I get rid of all evil. But now that Bulgaria was mostly conquered, Bayezid certainly had no intention of stopping there. The next year, in 1394, he crossed the Danube at the head of a 40,000-man army to invade Wallachia. They intended to punish its ruler, Mircea I, for raiding Ottoman territory and for supporting the Bulgarians. Unsurprisingly, Wallachia couldn't muster anywhere near as many soldiers to face the Ottomans, maybe around 10,000. Therefore, Mircea resorted to guerrilla warfare, just as the Wallachian rulers before him had done. But the Wallachians were ultimately forced to battle. Now, there aren't many details, but we do know that the Wallachian archers played a critical role in this battle, the, the sort of central, final struggle between them and the Ottomans. These archers devastated the Ottoman ranks. Also, two prominent Serbian nobles were fighting for the Ottomans as vassals. One alleged to have said on the eve of battle, quote, I pray God to help the Christians and that I will be among the first dead in this war. He got his wish. The Wallachians achieved a remarkable tactical victory, with the Ottomans ultimately relying on their crack Janissary troops to avoid an all-out defeat. In the end, the Ottomans were forced to retreat, failing to conquer Wallachia. As such, the Battle of Rovin is considered one of the most important in Romanian history. Still, on their way back south, the Ottomans did conquer Dobruja and Nikopol, where Ivan Shishman had been staying. Thus, only Vidin remained. Now, there are contrasting accounts saying that Ivan Shishman was killed right then or imprisoned and died later. But regardless, what is important is that all but the vassal state of Vidin had now fallen to the Ottomans, and Ivan Shishman's eldest son and successor, Alexander, well, he was spared and actually converted to Islam and became an Ottoman governor in Samsun along the Black Sea coast in Anatolia. He would later become governor of Smyrna and would essentially live out the rest of his life as an Ottoman governor and die around 1418. His brother, Frujin, fled to the court of Sigismund in Hungary where he was recognized as the legitimate heir to the throne in Turnival. But for all practical purposes, the Tsar of Bulgaria was now Ivan Stratzimir in Vidin, as Vidin was the last remaining Bulgarian land not under direct Ottoman rule. 
Now, while all this had been going on, another detachment of Ottomans had also laid siege to Constantinople in 1394. Though, until now, no progress had occurred towards their aim of ultimately taking the city. So, now the situation in the Balkans is as follows. The Byzantines control only Constantinople under siege, a stretch of the Black Sea coast, a bit of the peninsula of Halkidiki near Thessalonica, a bit of southern Greece, and a few islands. Wallachia was victorious and even expanding a bit at the expense of the Golden Horde. But still, it was nowhere near a power that could really challenge the Ottomans. Bosnia was still around, but weaker under its new ruler, while Hungary was powerful and looking for opportunities to expand. Importantly, Sigismund was slowly realizing that attacking weakened Balkan states like Bosnia or Wallachia may have allowed for easy expansion in the short term, but it would only aid in Ottoman expansion in the long term. And the Ottomans were clearly becoming a greater and greater threat even for the distant Hungarians. Therefore, Sigismund decided to put together something that the Balkans had been desperately needing for decades. Remember, the Ottomans had only gained a foothold in Europe in 1352, just 44 years before now. I, I had to kind of go check that. Just how long had the Ottomans been in the Balkans? For really a, less than a single regular lifetime. But Sigismund decided now was the time to put together a serious anti-Ottoman crusade. Because sure, there had been an anti-Ottoman crusade already, but as we know, it mostly ended up fighting the Bulgarians and had little effect. Sigismund gathered Christian soldiers from the Kingdom of France, the Holy Roman Empire, the Kingdom of Hungary, the Kingdom of Croatia, Wallachia, the Republics of Venice and Genoa, the Kingdom of England, Bulgarian soldiers, and the Knights Hospitaller, who had been formed originally to protect Jerusalem itself during the original Crusades. Together they amassed around 15,000 soldiers. Many chroniclers place this at nearly 100,000. Modern historians find this hard to believe. It's really strange to me because Hungary was a pretty powerful state. They was gathering soldiers from all these places. I guess maybe the real number is somewhere in between. But they took about 70 ships to ferry them down the Danube to attack the Ottomans. In June of 1396, the Crusader army set off on their ships, ready to destroy Ottoman power. Next time, we'll learn what happened to them. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech, or in English, good luck.